Amen. You guys may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. 1 Timothy, chapter 1. As I said, we are three weeks into our series uh, on the book of 1 Timothy, and this morning, specifically, we're going to look at verses 5 to 7. Just 5 to 7. Isn't it amazing to hear children singing to the Lord when we're all singing together? It's really good and really healthy how children should be brought up. Well, we have, as, as uh, many of you know, uh, like I said, we've been going through this series together for about three weeks. This is a letter uh, that was penned by the Apostle Paul uh, to a pastor who was his protege, if you will, uh, a man that, that the Apostle Paul had mentored, a man that had been brought up in the faith, and it, it was only natural that um, by the time that the Apostle Paul and, and Timothy here, by the time they crossed paths, it was the next step in Timothy's upbringing, if you will, um, for the Apostle Paul to really explain how Christ Jesus is the uh, fulfillment of the, the Old Testament scriptures. And so, uh, so Timothy kind of comes under the Apostle Paul's tutorship. Uh, the Apostle Paul, if you're familiar with the spread of the early church in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was a key figure in planting the church of Ephesus. He had warned the church of Ephesus before he departed. He warned particularly the Ephesian, or the, yeah, the Ephesian elders um, to uh, watch over, to guard uh, the flock of God because there were uh, fierce wolves that could come in to devour the sheep. And, uh, and now we're looking at a letter in which, um, in different ways, that has in fact been what's happened. And so the Apostle Paul um, at some point had sent Timothy to pastor Ephesus. We saw last week that um, there's this ongoing encouragement that Paul is giving to Timothy to remain at Ephesus, which is a, um, a, a pretty difficult post. And church history tells us um, that Timothy did, in fact, stay at Ephesus uh, until he was martyred um, for his faith and for um, both the way that he pastored, but also the way that um, his pastoral ministry and the ministry of the church bled in um, to the culture around him. And so uh, just as we're working through these sermons, I'm going to kind of continually uh, help us to remember the context of where we are. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, and this letter is intended to have been read uh, to the church of Ephesus being gathered together. And so we're reading a letter that would have been read publicly. And so look with me at verses 5 to 7, um, and then I'm going to pray. And, and really where we're going to camp out is on this, um, this idea of love. So verses 5 down to 7, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes these words. He says, the aim of the charge, of our charge, is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Verse 6, certain persons, right? There's the certain persons again we saw last week. Certain persons, again, you know who you are, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident 
assertions. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you that we can come together and look at it, God, be confident that in fact, while this was written by holy men of God, this was ultimately inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And we rest in that, God, and we know that you have the power to use it to change us. And so that's what we, that's what we would desire. That's what we want to be changed, to be conformed more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so help us in that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, the first thing that you can uh, jot down, which should be quite obvious uh, to us from a, a surface level, is that we need a biblical understanding of love. Right? We need a biblical understanding of love. Right? Paul says the aim of our charge, right? charge meaning commandment or instruction, the aim of our commandment, the aim of our instruction is love. Right? If, if, if love is the aim of, of Timothy staying put, as the Apostle Paul is again, tasked Timothy to do, if love is the aim of Timothy staying put, if love is the aim of him rebuking false teachers, if love is the aim of him rebuking false doctrine, then it's important that Timothy has a proper understanding of what love is, right? Because it can be easy to get love wrong. It can especially be easy to get love wrong when we're in the midst of conflict, right? It can be especially easy to get love wrong when um, there's strife and there's difficulties uh, in, in, in various circumstances, whether that be um, local church conflict or whether that be familial conflict, right? The holidays are just around the corner, uh, or whether that be... Um, uh, conflict just as Christians colliding with culture, right? Everybody has an opinion about love. The church of Ephesus, Paul or Timothy, this pastor, um, would also be uh, kind of rubbing against those opinions and battling inwardly with uh, his own opinions, just like we can battle uh, as well with our own distortions of what a biblical word like love would mean. Right? We know, or we should know, that, that words are important, right? right? God spoke this world into existence, right? The Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets and the apostles, right? He, he inspired uh, men to write words, and He has kept those words pure in all ages, the Apostle uh, John in John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the final word of God. All right, we see in the New Testament as well that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Right? Words are important. Right? How words are used is important. Right? The definitions of them are important. Words are important, right? And, and, and there's a battle that's going on that, that is as old as time on the usage and on the meaning of words. Quote, did God really say? Right? Did God really say? Did God really mean is what the serpent in the garden said to Eve as, as he twisted and manipulated the very words of our holy God, the very words 
of our Creator. And in a fallen world, with our own sin nature and distortions, it's, it's, it's easy for us to get a word, even a biblical word like love, wrong. In fact, we, we do get it wrong. We do express it wrong. And, and, and we know this, but we, we still seem to kind of spin our tires in capturing exactly what love is. Yet here we have Paul telling Timothy that this is the end goal of what's commanded. This is the end goal of the, the charge that's being given. The aim of our charge is love. But again, in our own sin nature, right, we've taken this aim, we've, we've taken this charge, and, and we've made it in and of itself this sort of intangible idol, if you will, that we can often worship, perhaps worship without even being conscious of it. We can even do that by looking at this passage this morning, and we bring even reading a biblical passage, uh, come reading this passage, and we bring all of uh, these definitions with us, all this baggage with us to the very text that we're reading, right? And, and in doing so, we walk away making it kind of say whatever it is that we want it to say, and, and oftentimes we fail to do the hard work to understand what the passage actually means. And what happens is we may end up thinking that love equates to something like niceness, all right? Therefore, niceness is the goal of the Christian, all right? And the, ex- the result of niceness being the definition of love is that we end up exchanging what is true and often hard so that we can be liked or so that things can be peaceful, even if that peace is counterfeit or temporary, even if that peace is damning. Love for many in our culture is synonymous with sex, right? Or romance, or being led by feelings. In other words, love is what you experience when you lack self-control. It's who you are when you lack self-control. That's who you really are, right? Or for others, it's this all too just common word. It's just become a common word. We're, we're too familiar with it. And we say things like, I love pizza. I love this song. I love this movie. Right? Our, our common usage of it is often an indicator of how little consideration we give to it, right? And we also see love used as a weapon to manipulate people, don't we? We see love used as, as this weapon in which uh, we can assert raw power over another person, in which we can enslave another person. All, right, all of this demonstrates, and this is just a short list, but all of this demonstrates that we've taken something good and godly and beautiful, and we've twisted it into something evil and sinister in an effort to serve our various lusts. At worst-case scenario, best-case scenarios, we just don't give it any attention whatsoever. So the question that we need to slow down and ask is what exactly is love? That's the question that we need to ask. What is love? And we need to chew on this answer as a church. I told you this before, but I had this friend named, I have this friend named Shatan. We grew up together. Shatan immigrated from India to southern Georgia, and there's not a lot of things that uh, are more culturally shocking than that. And um, 
But uh, he immigrated from India to South Georgia, and we were best friends growing up. And, uh, and he would always, I hated eating with him. I hated going out to eat with him. I hated going over his house to eat because he would always fuss at me because from his vantage point, I chewed my food too fast. And, um, and, it, and he would always tell me, it's better for my blood if I chew. And when we would go out to eat, it became like a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour thing because he chewed his food 30 times a bite. It was the worst. And, um, uh, and, but th- that, that was the thing. And I can't, th- I can't think about slowing down, and I can't think about our fast-paced kind of rhythm of life without thinking of shaitan, of, of how uh, we just by nature kind of live in fast-paced society, right? Let's move, move through things very quickly. And I, and I hear shaitan in the back of my head kind of nagging me to slow down, if you will. And, uh, and really, there's nothing wrong with, with reading something like the Word of God for breadth, right? Getting the meta-narrative of Scripture, seeing that how it all points to Christ Jesus. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Uh, but our natural inclination, I fear, is one of hurry, one of rush, one of a quick pace, when in reality, maybe what we need to do is slow down a little bit. Maybe what we need to do is chew 30 times on a passage of Scripture and let it get into our bloodstream, right, and, 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 and pull and extrapolate all the nutrients out of it. We need to slow down, and perhaps if we slow down, a result of that will be that the Lord renews our mind on things, issues like the biblical words, love. And, um, and so we need to slow down. We need to internalize the answer to the question, and we need to allow the light of God's Word to chase away all the dark counterfeit versions of love that are in our, that are in our head, that are in our hearts, that are in our hands. So we get now, if you look back at the, the, the passage with me, we kind of get a clue as to the answer to this question, what is love? And we get a clue in the way in which Paul speaks to Timothy about it. He says, the aim of our charge, our charge, is love. And he seems obvious, but who gave the charge to love? Who gave that charge? Is it Paul on his own authority? We established the answer to this a couple of weeks ago, but Paul's not giving this charge on his own authority, right? Paul was an apostle. He was an authorized agent uh, of Jesus, an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ and commissioned by Christ to be an apostle. The, the, the apostle Paul here is speaking on behalf of Christ about Christ. Right? Paul's ministering in the authority of Jesus. It's our Lord who gave this charge, and he, he didn't just give it to Timothy, right? He didn't just charge Timothy by saying that the aim of our charge is love, right? He gave this charge to Paul as well. And he didn't just give this charge to Paul. He gave this charge to the twelve. And he didn't just give this charge to the twelve, but through the twelve, this charge comes to us through the Spirit's preserving of this charge. The very fact that we're reading it here and the Holy Spirit of God lives in our hearts should bear testimony to the fact that this charge is also to us. It comes to us through the Spirit's preserving of it. And I, I want to show us this in a couple of ways this morning as we seek, seek to have our thinking transform on this issue of love. And the two, the, uh, particularly, I want to show you two ways and, and that I think can help us to 
further shed light on the question, what is love, and to see how, how this charge is carried down um, to us as well. And, and the first thing, if you're jotting down notes that I want us to see, that we need to internalize, that we need to confess, again, what should be obvious to us is this, God is love, right? God is love. Right, this is the very thing, this is the foundational thing that keeps love out of the ditches of idolatry. Right, God is love is the very thing that keeps us out of the ditches of idolatry. 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 to 17 says this, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Get this, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I'm going to read that section one more time. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he, it's a preparation for judgment, right? Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's an inseparable connection between God and love because God is love, right? God is, and we talked about this earlier this summer when we did Uh, a sermon on the doctrine of God, but God is his attributes. It's not that God possesses love as some thing outside of himself that he's constantly trying to acquire or, or grab. He himself is love. And John tells us here in this passage that to abide in love means to abide in God, which means that God must dwell with us, right? God must dwell with us. He must be in us as the starting point for our love. And this is, getting close to Christmas time, this is exactly what God did, isn't it? This is exactly what the Lord did. He dwelt with us so that he may dwell in us, right? He dwelt with us so that he may dwell in us. Listen how John puts it in John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word, right, Logos here is the Word, became flesh. The Word of God became flesh. Jesus added to his deity humanity. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from God, full of grace and truth. Right, John says that Christ, the final Word of God, became a man and he dwelt among us. And that verb there, dwelt, in John chapter 1, is related to the word for tent, or the word tabernacle. There's some Old Testament imagery that that should bring up here. But what John is saying, what we we don't want to move too quickly past, is that in in, in the incarnation, Christ tabernacled amongst his people. After his resurrection and ascension, our helper, our comforter, 
came, right? The Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, and he came to tabernacle in us, right? Paul even calls our bodies what? A temple. A temple of what? A temple of the Holy Spirit, Second or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, right? In Christ, God possesses us and we possess him, which means that we possess the ability to love in a way that honors God because we're in possession of love himself, right? Love lives in us. Isn't that encouraging this morning? Love lives in us. God is love, and God has given us himself through the person and work of Christ by the power of the Spirit. God is love, which means that love is holy, Love is holy. I've said that before, right? Love is holy, and the way in which we love should be holy. If love is holy, the way in which we love should be holy, and to infuse it with any foreign definition in our lacking control, in our manipulating people, is as blasphemous as the first sin in the garden. So foundationally, God is love, as we seek to answer the question, what is love? Perhaps a better way of putting it is, who is love? Who is love? Secondly, kind of work through this issue of love, we really should see Christ's expectation of how we're to love. How are we to love exactly? Christ shows us the order of love. Christ shows us the order of love. There really is a concrete order on on how exactly we apply love. And Jesus answers this clearly for us in Matthew chapter 22. I'd encourage you just to flip over there for a minute. And I'm going to read verses 34 to 40 in the Gospel of Matthew. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Verse 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He says these two things summarize right, the, the Old Testament here is what he's saying. Right, uh, so what we have is a Pharisee who practiced the law, asked Jesus a question about the law. Right? And, and, and it, it was in, in typical Pharisaical Style, it seemed to be a, a test, if you will, or it seemed to be a trap, if you will. And his question was, which is the greatest commandment? And, and the answer that Christ gives is astounding because in his answer, he reinforces God's enduring moral law. And he, he reinforces it by dividing the Ten Commandments up into what theologians call the two tables of the law. Again, we kind of talked about this earlier this summer when we Uh, uh, went through the law of God. But Christ says the great and first commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, 
and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. The, the, the first four commandments in the Ten Commandments are all about how we love the Lord, right? Now, those commandments are God's summary, if you will, right? from, from having no rivalries in our lives that cloud our love of God, right? commandment one, to, to keeping the Sabbath as worship unto the Lord, which is commandment four, that, that's the greatest commandment. It's the first, the first table of the law, the first four commandments there. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Then Christ goes on with the second greatest commandment. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? This, this is the second table of the law. We see God's moral law as it relates to our neighbor summarized, and we're working through this again presently in our uh, time of confession each Lord's Day, but we see God's moral law as it relates to our neighbor summarized in the back six commandments, right? If, if, if we're concerned about loving our neighbor, if that's kind of this mantra of our society, right, we, we want to see exactly how it is that we do that. And these back six commandments begin with honoring our mother and our father, Commandment five, they end with thou shalt not covet. The tenth commandment, it's an interesting example for us here. Who would have thought that one of the ways in which this this envious culture that we love our neighbor is by not wanting what others have and instead being content with what God gives us? Certainly we see James show how we harm our neighbors in coveting. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. But, but do you see how God, you see how Christ is ordering things here for us? You see the order, right? You can't even grasp love apart from God who is love. You can't know love, divine love, experientially apart from the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, and you can't love redemptively and unselfishly apart from getting the order of your loving down, right? The love of God, and this is crucial for us, this is critical, because if we want to change the way our society loves, we've got to change the way that we think as a church about love, right? right? The love of God must precede our love for neighbor, right? Our love for God must precede our love for neighbor. Anything other than that is idolatry. Anything other than that, even if there's the best of intentions behind it, anything other than that is idolatry. The love of God must precede our love for neighbor. And so we see love is the aim of of, of the charge from our triune God. We see that God is love, and we see and we should act according to the ordering, the proper ordering. The The first four commandments is the first table, love of God. The back six commandments is the expression of how we love our neighbor, and that allows us to love redemptively. That allows us to love uh, in a Godward, uh, forward movement. Now, go back to the, the text with me for a moment. 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 7. The aim of our charge is love, 
issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And I'll actually stop there and, and read the rest in a moment. The aim of our charge of life, it issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. All right, Paul says that this love, this love that we've defined, it issues, it, it flows from three things. Right? Love flows from, from three things according to this passage. A pure heart, right? a good conscience, right? which is a clean one, a strong one, and a sincere faith, which is um, uh, a faith without hypocrisy, if you will. The type of love that we're talking about this morning, according to Paul, right, flows from, or we we are in possession of it, uh, in a way that should be obvious to us, right? And we need to allow this kind of grand, beautiful, unchanging truth to just wash over us anew every time we hear it. So, so hear it well this morning, right? Those things are gifts from our triune God. Right? The pure heart, the good conscience, the sincere faith, those are gifts to us from our triune God. It's the Spirit of God, it's the Holy Spirit of God that applies the spilled blood of Jesus to our hearts, purifying us based on His person, based on His work. All right, the Lord prophesies through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, you, you know this, but 36 verses 26 to 27, I will give you a new heart, right? I'll give you a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be, okay, and, uh, be careful to obey my rules. Now look at the Psalms with me. Psalm chapter 73 verse 1, so the song of, of, of Asaph here. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Or Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. These these kind of rhetorical questions that perhaps the psalmist is is asking so that uh, he can be reminded of what he knows to be true. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in the holy place is the question. The answer He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, right? Who is pure in heart? Who is pure in heart? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Us? No. We know Christ Jesus is the one with the pure heart. Right? We know that it's Christ Jesus who ascended the hill. We know that it's Jesus who stands in the holy place. We know that it's Jesus who alone has clean hands, who alone has a pure heart. And it's Jesus alone that makes his people, those who put their faith and their trust in him alone for salvation, pure in heart. What of a good conscience? What of a good conscience? What of our ability to have moral intuition? Is it not that God's graciously written his law on our hearts, which drives us to Christ Jesus? Right? That's what the prophet Ezekiel prophesies about that I just read a moment ago. That's what uh, the Apostle Paul reinforces in Romans 2 when he says that the law of God is in fact written on our hearts. What of sincere faith? What a faith without hypocrisy. 
That's not something that we conjure in and of ourselves, right? Right, that in and of itself is a gift too. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says as much. For by grace you've been saved through what? Through faith, right? This grace is a gift. This faith is a gift. Paul labors. We've talked about this before. He labors to help us see this, right? Just when we begin to be puffed up and to think that this is something that we've been able to grasp ourselves or, again, conjure up ourselves, he says, this isn't your own doing, right? And, and just when that pride begin to swell, begins to swell again, he says, it's the gift of God. And just when the pride begins to swell again, he says, not of works, No one can boast. And the beauty of this, right, is is this is ours in Jesus. This is what we possess in Christ. It's rightfully ours. It's rightfully ours as adopted sons and daughters because we're heirs of the Most High King because of Christ Jesus. We possess these things, and even uh, on top of that, to, to make it even more grand, to make it even more glorious, is that, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, these things can be cultivated in our lives, and ultimately they can find their proper expression in our love of God and our love of neighbor. Right, one pastor says this about the, the pure heart, and the good conscience, and sincere faith. He says this, in Scripture... The heart stands for the totality of man's innermost self. And so a pure heart points to the radical inward renewal which enables a man to love God and serve God with a single-minded devotion. And then he says the word conscience literally means a knowing with and is a term frequently used by Paul to designate the innate faculty of self-judgment by which a man tries his own thoughts and actions To experience freedom from the guilt of sin and be led by the Spirit is to enjoy the blessing of a good conscience. And then he goes on and he says, Paul, with a sidelong glance at the false teachers, at that that company that he talks about, he speaks of sincere faith, which, which is a faith without hypocrisy. And he says, it needs no actor's mask to conceal its insincerity. The problem is with all of this, and the reason why this letter had been penned in the first place and read in the assembly of Ephesus is that there's enemies, aren't there? There are enemies. And as Christians, we need to know, we need to be mindful of our enemies, which is the last thing I want you to see. Know and be mindful of your enemies. We we know these enemies to be the world, we know these enemies to be our own flesh, and we know these enemies to be the devil. Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses tell us as much. Now, the church of Ephesus was facing enemies, and and again, this is a part of what necessitated Paul writing, but we have to, you know, 2,000 plus years removed, still be aware. And interestingly enough, and I did this as an exercise for my uh, my own sake, but if you cross-reference pure heart, if you cross-reference clean conscience, if you cross-reference sincere faith, you can quickly begin to see the enemies. Right? If you're having a difficult time identifying the enemies, I would encourage you to just go do a cross-reference of those three things that, that are uh, behind uh, um, love, which is the aim. But this was what I came up with, idolatry. 
Psalm chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, in the enemy. Lack of confession. Right? Nothing will, will taint your conscience quicker than a lack of confession, right? 1 John 1, 9. Lacking in, uh, lying and perjuring. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, or last week, Psalm 24, 4. Sexual immorality. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. A double-mindedness, James 4, 8. Trusting the heart, right? Jeremiah 17, 9. Judging by worldly weights and measures, 1 Samuel 16, 7 and Proverbs 16, 2. Not delighting in truth, Psalm 51, 6. A lust for worldly possessions, Matthew 6, 21. Despair, Proverbs 17, 22. Hypocrisy, Acts 23, 1 and 24, 16. An impractical or some theoretical orthodoxy, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Evil, unbelieving, or unfeeling hearts, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. And all of this is wrapped up in prayerlessness and fear. 1 Peter 5, 7. Right? There, there are enemies. As I was kind of working through this cross-reference, I was thinking and would commend the book, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, to you. That there are enemies, and, and we see the outworking of the enemies work in these certain persons that we learned about last week that the Apostle Paul uh, mentions just in the very next few verses, right? Paul is, in all of this, is kind of doing a compare and contrast in our passage this morning, verses 6 and 7. Certain persons, and imagine this again being read in, as the church is gathering, right? Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, which means meaningless chatter, chatterboxes. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There are clear examples in the very church of Ephesus where folks have either A, abandoned love through their different doctrines, demonstrating that they never belonged to Christ in the first place, or they were always wolves in sheep's clothing. Either way, they could be doctors of the law, as some, some of your translations may Say, but but they don't have understanding, right? They're they're speaking beyond what they know, right? They have a Christless doctrine, which is the different doctrine, and that that's going to have its corresponding in. As one pastor puts it, if the heart is not in the great things of the gospel, if it's out of accord with their deep spiritual tone, it can't delight to speak of them, and on, and will be only too glad to turn aside. To inferior topics. All right, the heart should be about the great things of the gospel. All right, inferior topics lead to the path that leads to destruction. Right, they lead to enslavement, as we saw last week. They lead to all types of wickedness. Right? The law these certain persons thought they were teachers of should point to Jesus Christ. But, but they were twisted and they were directed somewhere else, either intentionally or unintentionally. And we need this morning to, to look at a text like this, 
And again, depending on the Word of God and depending on the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to know ourselves, and with the confidence of Christ and with the joy of having our sins forgiven, we should combat those enemies that lead us away from the sufficiency of Jesus, knowing already that our enemies in Christ are defeated. Amen? A few takeaways for us this morning, and then I'll close in prayer. And these are in your worship guide, so again, don't fret to try to jot these down. But one, of, one is, is just an encouragement, a spiritual exercise for you. Spend time in Scripture doing a word study on love so that you can ensure it's the Scriptures shaping your heart, thinking, and actions. Okay? Spend time in Scripture doing a word study on love so that you can ensure it's the Scriptures shaping your heart, thinking, and actions. You'll be graded on this. Um, just kidding. Secondly, remember that in Christ you're a possessor of a pure heart, a clean conscience, and sincere faith. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can cultivate those things in your life. Remember that in Christ you're a possessor of a pure heart, clean conscience, and sincere faith. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can cultivate those things in your life. Number three, if you're struggling in your conscience... Spend time prayerfully reflecting on why. If it's because of sin, confess it, repent of it, and be happy in Jesus. If it's because the accuser is preaching condemnation over that which Christ died for, remember that Jesus is sufficient and really did leave your sins behind in an empty tomb. So with that said, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for this time that we've had in your word, God. We pray that, Lord, you would shape us on this issue of love, God, that, uh, Lord, that you would allow us to cultivate that which we already possess, Lord, the pure heart, a good, a clean, a strong conscience, God, and a sincere faith, God. And we thank you for those gifts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.